Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 13. That's Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. I've titled this message, God at Work in You. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your wonderful love your demonstration of your love, the love of a Savior for us. While we were yet sinners, Lord Jesus, you died for us up on the cross. Forgive us for ever doubting your love. It is today, Lord, we want to know that love more than we've ever known before. We ask that you would speak, that you would empower us, you would encourage us, You would just provoke us on down that road, that road to life that that the world sees us as your living stones, a testimony that you are a loving God. So Lord, we look to you. Speak, for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, Amen. Today's an interesting study. It's only two verses. Again, it's verses 12 and 13 in Philippians. It's a doctrinal study. When we talk about doctrine, and oftentimes people begin to check out or they get nervous and they think they've got to be this great theologian or they've got to read all these books of theology. But that's not so. Every person that reads the Bible who wants to know God and what he's done for us is a theologian in one sense. There are words that we use that define what God has done and help us to see his relationship. For example, one of those words that we've used in the past is a word we call regeneration, which has to do with our nature. When we're regenerated, we're born again, and we're given this new nature. We are placed into a body we're going to see in a second. We also use the word justification from time to time. Justification speaks of our standing, that God sees us just as we've never sinned. And then there's the word adoption. Well, that's our position. We're placed into the body of Christ. We're a child of God. And today, the the word that we're going to see that is really what this text is all about is the word sanctification. Sanctification has to do with our character and our conduct. Now, in justification, we're declared righteous. God sees us just as we've never sinned. It's it's our position in a sense. But sanctification is where we become righteous. It's where God is at work in you and me. And what we'll see is there's God's part and our part. Justification is what God does for us, while sanctification is what God does in us. Justification puts us into a right relationship with God, while sanctification exhibits the fruit of that relationship. See, when a person is in a intimate, deep relationship in their life, there is much fruit that overflows from his life. And I'm going to focus on love. And it's a life that's separated from the sinful world, and it's a life dedicated to a loving, holy God who set his love upon you and me. Well, let's read our text together. 
It's there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, we begin, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, what does this mean to work out your own salvation? The word work out means to work on, to bring to completion or finish or perfection. It always means to complete the effort, the work that was begun, to accomplish it perfectly, to bring it into completion. Now, the, the idea here is we're going to see that there is our part, as I mentioned, and there's God's part. We are working, co-working with God for God's purpose and God's will. He doesn't leave us alone, but he's active in our life, even today, even this morning. Well, let's look at the believer's role in sanctification. Notice in, in the verse 12, those first two words, so then. We see the, the believer's focus. Notice the words again, so then, which takes us back again to the, the same chapter, but verses 5 and 8. To Christ, who was that perfect example of humility and submission and obedience. It was in his incarnation when God became flesh that Jesus did not cling to his equality with God, that is the Father, but instead empty himself of all of his divine rights and privileges. He took the form of a, a bondservant we saw. He was obedient to the heavenly father, even to the point of dying upon the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It's also true that this self-emptying of the son of God placed him in a role as a servant, a servant to the will of the father and to the power of of the Holy Spirit. In essence, of the living Christian, this is what it's all about. It's a life being obedient to the Father, being obedient to the Son. In fact, there's a key thought here I want to pull out. It's actually in Hebrews 12 too. And here's the key for you and me. It says, fixing our eyes upon Jesus Notice the author, the perfecter of her faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If we are to walk out this sanctified life, if we were to bring this walk, this life to completion and finish and bring glory to God, it's following the example of Jesus. Following the example of Jesus is the goal and should be the goal for every believer. Now, the believer's life is a, a life of love. In fact, notice those two words again in verse 12, my beloved. The apostle exhorts these saints to live a life, first of humility and second of self-denial, just as the Savior did. But he calls them, my beloved ones. See, it's in the Greek. The word is plural. 
The distinctive word here for love refers to the love that is God's love, to a love produced in the heart by the Holy Spirit, and a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of others. See, he's saying, my beloved ones. And that's so important to understand because we need to understand some things. If we're to move on, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to walk in that love, what does it mean? Well, Apostle John and Paul both knew that love of God. In fact, let's look at the Apostle John in John 19, 26. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And he said to his mother and woman, behold your son. I know you remember that passage. And, and as Jesus is, is about to leave, he, he's saying, John, you're going to have to take care of my mom. But what I really want to call your attention to, notice that word highlighted up on the screen. And he loved him. John knew that Christ loved him. Remember on that last supper, John laid his head upon the bosom of Jesus. There is power in knowing that you're loved by God. There are times in people's lives, in every one of our lives, that, that oppression affects us, where the enemy you know, causes this doubt. Does, does God really love me? Stop right there. Look at the cross. Look at all that Jesus Christ endured for you and me. That love just filled his life. It overwhelmed him. In fact, when Paul addresses the Philippians here, he's very tenderly, as he says, my beloved. He's saying, my love is deeply rooted. In fact, he means whom Christ loves. My beloved ones, the ones that Christ loves, and I also love. A love that is deeply rooted. And that's how our love needs to be. Not shallow, not flippant. Love your brother and go on. But a love that comes into contact with people, that sits before people, that cares about people, that ministers to people, that wants the best for one another. This love, it, it's something that God pours in our life and changes us from the inside out. Paul writes in Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Christ longed to be with the people, but he says, man, it's this love, this affection in me that's moving me, it's driving me, it's engaging me. And God's love is poured out in your hearts. And we can either stop it up, damn it up, and not let that love move. Or we can open our hearts up and let it flow. And love the people around us. I love that history of the, the Church of Calvary Chapel. And one of the things I want to call your attention to is, you know, when the, the hippies were all getting saved and they were you know, we're on LSD and all these things, and they're bringing them in. They were peace, love, and groovy, but they were looking for love, and they were looking for love in the wrong places. But when they come to know Jesus Christ, they found true love. 
they would take him as a group and they'd take him on the school campuses. They'd take him into malls and they would just go out and love people and tell them what God has done in their lives. And that's what love does. If you love your wife, if you love your kids, you're going to talk about them. And they didn't stop it up. They let it flow. They wrote songs about the love of God. And we need to be in that place again. Now, Paul was very aware now, first of all, of the weaknesses and the shortcomings of, of those in, in Philippians. Now, they weren't doctrinally wrong, but they were exposed to worldly, false teachers, Jewish legalists. There's always the struggle of pride. He knew the pride. He knew the agendas. He knew the conflict between two precious sisters that we'll see when we get to chapter 4 and verse 2. And he admonished them to live in harmony in the Lord. See, Paul called them affectionately simply to follow Christ's example, to put into practice the, the things that they'd already learned and received and, and heard. And see, that's what, when we're working out our salvation, is the things that God has shown us. He's poured his love. He's shown us what love is to look like. Now go in love. Let these things be seen in your life. It's not going to show them off, but it's just living the life. Not, not hiding, not damning it up. But if you really love, you will go out. You will follow everything that's in there. While we will not be perfect, but we will be more like him each and every day and every year thereafter. Look at the believers, though faithful obedience. I love that because love is what motivates you and me to walk in obedience. Romans 16, 19, this refers again to Paul's letter there. And he says, I report of your obedience reach all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want to be wise in what is good and innocent of evil. Notice the obedience has reached out to all. You know, when you're walking in the faith, when you're walking that straight and narrow path, when you're walking as Christ walks, is what the Bible calls a living stone. You're a testimony. There's a God. It's one of the, the fruits that shows that you are a true believer. You should be able to look into a crowd and see that there is something different between your life and the next life. The life of a believer and the unbeliever. It's like day and night. We don't do the same things. We don't say the same things. We don't dress the same way. We're not driven by the same motives because our motive is a love for God. A love to, to glorify him. A love to lift people up out of the mud and pick them up. And when a believer falls, it's not to tear them down. It's not to crush them, but it's to lift them up and cleanse them up and help them set boundaries, safe boundaries. And Paul's pointing out, you, you've always obeyed. He's saying, this is truthful about the Philippians. And Paul encourages the Philippians to continue in that faithful submission is what he's doing. That faithful submission to God's will. Now that, that word obeyed is to submit. To obey is in, in, in a past tense. This is what you've done. Continue to do it. 
And the compound verb is basic meaning is placing oneself under what has been heard. And therefore, submitting and obeying what was instructed. The believer must listen to God's word if he is to be obedient. He is to to be under the word, not over the word, saying, well, God didn't really mean that, because then we're putting ourselves in a place of authority. Well, again, the believer must be listen to God's word, wanting to hear God's word, wanting to know the truth, wanting to rightly divide that truth. This is indirectly appeal for believers really to to continue to study and obey the scripture because how can you walk in God's will if you don't know what God's word says? How can you obey it if you don't know the truth? It was interesting when you look at Israel's history, uh, there was much time that they did not have because of their rebellion. They didn't have God's word. They remembered the the temple. They remembered the things of the Holy Holies. There's a place called Arad. It's in Israel. And and in this place, during the time that uh, Israel was occupying it, they had built a, a place of the Holy of Holies. And it was not perfect, but it was showing that they wanted to to do the right thing, but they really didn't know what the right thing was. It was a copy, and yet they were living in sin because they really didn't know what God's word said. What I do like, changing gears, is in Acts 17, 11, I've always been encouraged by this verse. It says, now these were more noble, this is referring to the Bereans, than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if it was so. See, they were noble because they received the word. They didn't reject the word. They didn't doubt the word. The thing that they wanted to do is they wanted to examine it and see if it's so. They did this with great eagerness. Notice the scripture there. And they did it daily. We know the scripture well. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And they were growing in their faith and they became living stones. This is how you and I are sanctified as we continue in that word. We we receive it. We receive with eagerness. We, we want to check in daily. We want to be guided And we will walk in the truth as he's in the truth. Now, there's a God's part I'm going to squeeze in here too. And there's your part. We see it again in Acts 16, verse 14. If you remember when uh, Paul had come to um, Philippi, there was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabrics. Uh, She was a worshiper of God. And notice those words there again on the screen and was listening. She was listening. And I want to add these words to it. If you go and study the word out, you'll understand where I'm coming from. She was listening with intent to know God, to know the truth that would set her free. 
And it goes on, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. See, it's when you're listening with intent to obey, to to walk out this truth, to know whether it's true or false, that is when the Lord opens up the heart of a person. And when he opens up the heart, then we can respond. There's God's part, and there's man's part. God will give us everything that we need to know, but we have to choose to want to hear and want to obey. And when we come in that way, seeking him and seeking him with all of our heart, then God opens our heart that we can know him. Now, in this studying of the word, it doesn't mean, as you see on the screen in 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 50, that we're to, to wrangle about words. That's useless, it says. It leads to ruin of the hearers. But look at verse 15 there. It says, But be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Now, oftentimes people say, well, well, this is Timothy. He's going to be a pastor. No, while that is true, this is for every believer. One day you and I will stand before God. We will be accountable what we have done with the word of God, our knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why we want to be diligent to present ourselves to God, that, that we are a workman who need not be ashamed, accurately handling that word of truth. That, that idea of accurately handling the word of truth, it, it comes from like cutting, like a seamstress cutting a straight line. When we come to the word of God, we need to cut a straight line. We need to know this is what God says, and this is not what he's saying. We need to know that truth that sets us free. You've probably heard people on TV, maybe even friends, just flippantly talk about all kinds of things in the Word, and God said, and that's not what the Bible is saying. I recently read a, a book, uh, and and this book, it was and I'm, I'm starting to read it, and I'm getting very frustrated. That's not what the Bible's saying. That's not what the Bible's saying, I'm thinking in my heart. If they'd only stop, if they'd read that passage 20 verses before or 20 verses after, try and find the context of that passage, they would have a different view of what that text says. See, what people do, instead of cutting accurately the word, dividing it accurately, is they flippantly come and just take it out of context. We need to know what the context is. What is the author really telling us? And sometimes it's 20 verses before, 20 verses after. Sometimes in the, in the case of John 14, it's actually three chapters. We need to be diligent. We need to examine it and see if it's so like the Bereans. And then... Like we see in Matthew, we have a responsibility. Matthew 28, go, therefore. We're to, to go. And notice the next word darkened there. It's make disciples. Now, what kind of disciple can we make if we do not know the word of God? You and I, if we are a disciple of Christ, we will hang and on his words and know his words, be obedient to him. And then the type of disciple that we'll make is one who follows Christ. They'll want to be baptized. They'll want to identify with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they will want to observe the commands because that's what we're doing, 
teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Well, God's command to Peter, James, and John, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, it's, it's outstanding. Well, these words that came were the words from the Father. And the Father said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. If there's anything I say today, that's probably the most important thing. Listen to him. Listen to him with intent to hear him speak and to obey. And the Father will open up your heart to understanding that you've never known before. Well, the next thing I want to call your attention to is really the believer's personal responsibilities. Notice with me again in verse 12 in our passage, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Why, they had been faithful, faithful uh, uh, again in, in doing what they had been taught, but it needs to continue. They need to live this life out in a daily fashion. See, believers are to work out their salvation. It's understanding their personal responsibilities. Because believers are sinful. They're inclined to to self-justify, blame others and circumstances and other people for the problems and failures. That's just our flesh. We need to take this and live it out and say, this is wrong. I am a child of truth. And Paul commends, though, the Philippians here for their faithful pattern obedience to Christ. They're walking as Christ walked. In his presence, that's great, but even much more in his absence, and that's what they had been doing. Now, Paul is writing, if you stop and think about it, a long ways away. He's probably, when he's writing this letter, incarcerated in Rome, And it means that his only contact with him is is letters, such as this present one. And it may be occasional report from a, a mutual friend. But as disappointing and challenging situation it was, Paul reminds them of their spiritual responsibility. Their responsibility is not just to him, it is to the Lord first of all. They were to obey the Lord really in spite of Paul's absence, he's not watching over. You know, my mom would tell me when I was young, and maybe you can identify this. There was a point in time when I was young, my mom tell me, don't do it. As soon as she was out of the room, I would do it because I wanted to do it. We still have that carnal, fleshly nature in us, and we need to choose to follow the Lord. In fact, in Philippians 1.27, notice what it says. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here's the neat thing. If you choose to put yourself under the word of God, to listen, to obey, to recognize it's all about Jesus, you will find that you will be standing in the Spirit, one Spirit. You will have one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel because it's all about Jesus. 
You can tell those that are standing in that that one spirit, striving together, and those are still functioning in the flesh, still yielding to their fleshly desires, not in obedience, not under the word, but judging others, finding fault. They're the only ones right, and yet they're blinded by sin. Now remember, sin blinds a person. And when we think of the story of Samson, it blinded him. His eyes were gouged out. You could no longer see. He became a grinder. And that's what sin does. We lose our eyesight. We go blind. In a spiritual sense, our eyes are taken away. And our life is grinding away. See, this is why we want to be under the word. We want all that God has for us. And we want others around us to have all that God would have for them. Now, believers must never be primarily dependent upon a pastor, a teacher, a Christian fellowship for their spiritual strength and growth. The supreme example is Jesus Christ. The true power comes from his Holy Spirit. It's being in the word and knowing that the table spread. Whatever you need is in him. That's true. God gives teachers. God gives many different ministries. But Jesus is the head of all those. He is the one that we need to draw from. He is the one that we need to follow. Believers, if we are to walk out this life of sanctification, to work it out, is the scripture saying, Well, look with me in verse 12. We're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Fact is, life is is not a bed of roses. It's not a bowl of cherries. Life is hard sometimes. It's full of trials and pain, hurt, tragedy and disease. Accidents, loss, full of temptation, sin, evil, corruption, and death. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Every single human being experiences these things somehow until it comes to face to face with death. Now, it's not to say that life sometimes is not beautiful, it's not wonderful, but the reality is life is a journey of trials all the way to the point of death. God, though, has promised to say that he would use these for good in our life, and and that's why the scripture is so important, because we can go through this life in confidence that he who begins his work in us will finish it. We can't deny that life is the way it is sometimes and, and camouflage and hide ourselves to escape. All the things are happening. No, no, no. Life is tough. And at the very end, there is going to be a judgment upon this world. And every person will stand before that judge one day, either at the beam of seat or the white throne judgment. That's why Proverbs says, 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, there's this fear, first of all, I want to call your attention to as a, a believer when he recognizes his sinfulness, his, his need of God. He cannot save himself in every culture around the world. There's this idea that I must be judged for my sins. There must be a sacrifice for my sins. And it's this fear, this, this terror. When I recognize that he is this holy, righteous God and he will judge sin, Notice with me Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. When a person recognizes they cannot save themselves, they have this fear that can lead them into the presence of the Lord and give them this humble, broken, contrite heart and say, God, save me. When they hear him speak, they want to understand, they want to know, and they want to follow. They no longer have this, this trust and confidence themselves. See, this godly fear, it, it involves self-distrust. Having a, a sensitive conscience, being guard against temptation. It produces a godly sorrow. See, before a person becomes a believer and they, they see God and this judgment that's going to come, it should move them to bring them to Christ, to, to humble themselves. And as soon as they become a believer, as soon as they become born again and regenerated, then God says, fear not. The fear becomes a, a reverential fear. In fact, there's a fear, a godly fear, a godly sorrow, a sorrow over our sins. Notice again, 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. Notice it leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, this fear and trembling will cause believers to, to pray earnestly for God's help in avoiding sin. God, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from my bent towards sin. Just like the, the prayer in Matthew 6, 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us and rescue us from evil. The believer knows he cannot do it on his own. He needs God. And that's so key, so important. It's this kind of fear that leads us to work out our salvation. Now that, that phrase, work out, it's an imperative. It's ongoing. In fact, it literally means to keep working down or that constant process of self-initiated activity. It's something that's ongoing in our life until the day the Lord brings us to be with him. We're continually applying and reevaluating and Lord, how can I walk closer with you? When a believer is thoroughly working at his spiritual development, he is working out, out what God is working in him. That's really the key. Another motive for the believers is working out 
their salvation is is understanding really the consequences of sin. As I mentioned earlier, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The object of, of this work is working out our own salvation. Now, a person cannot work for salvation, but he can work out his spiritual salvation in his life. He's already justified, but he still has this sinful nature he needs to learn to control, and he can only control it in the Spirit. Now, Ephesians 2.10, I love the verse because it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we'd walk in him. So when we become a believer, we are his workmanship. He begins working in us, working thoughts in us, but we still have that part. We come along. Notice with me in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Notice he saved us. He called us with a holy calling. According to our works, but according to, or excuse me, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. And as his workmanship, Paul's talking about in Philippians 1 6, I'm confident this very thing that he who began that good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you God's workmanship? Have you been born again? If you are his workmanship and born again, then he will finish the work in you. And our part is just to simply submit to him. The apostle exhorted the Corinthians in a really in a strenuous effort in, in living that Christian life. And I believe it's true for us today. He's speaking to Paul and he exhorted Timothy and and he says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, 12, But flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of eternal life, which you were called. And you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, we have to take a hold of eternal life. While we are saved and going to go to heaven, we're not always walking as saved people. That's why we put these things off, put on godliness. This is working out salvation. The Christian life, it's much more than just a passive yielding or surrender, a letting go and, and, and letting God. It is to work out our salvation in daily living. The world needs to see that Christ is in us. He's living in us and through us. While at the same time, it's realizing that all the power for that obedience comes from the Spirit of God. In fact, when we talk about salvation, salvation has three tenses. It's past, it's present, and future. The past tense, as we talked about earlier, is the justification when a believer is placed in their faith into Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord, when they're redeemed. God sees them just as he never sinned. They're kept until that day. The present tense, though, is sanctification, what we're looking at. That's the time between the believer's justification 
and his death or the rapture. It's where we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in us. There's also the idea of a future tense, of glorification, when salvation is completed. That's when it's worked out, God's worked in us, and we've submitted to him, and it's there that we receive those glorified bodies. So believers, therefore, they're, they're being saved and will be saved, and they are saved. And it's the three tenses of salvation. Well, again, in verse 13, we, we have the, the divine enablement. The saints are to carry their salvation, which God has given them, which thus belongs to them, and that's the ultimate goal, remembering and depending upon the fact that God is the one who's working in them both to will and to do his good pleasure. Look with me at Hebrews 7, verse 25. I love this verse. This is, therefore, he is able. Also to save forever those who draw near through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. We'll see, God's role in sanctification is, is saving us. He's able. He has the power. He has the knowledge. And we simply say, Lord, save me. Quit fighting with him and let him save us. He has the power. Who is at work? Notice in verse 13, the work means to energize. God arouses and stirs and energizes the heart of a believer to do his will. That's the most wonderful truth. These are the stirrings of God in us. And God's working with us and energizing us, giving us both the will and the power to do as he pleases. God uses the energy, the stirring to direct and guide us. To point, to see that God is forever working with us, is never leaving us alone. He's working and stirring us to complete that salvation. See, God is completing. God is guarding. Well, I got a question. What do we do when we don't feel like obeying? Have you ever felt that way? Yes, every one of us at some point. I just don't want to do it. Maybe cross your arms and say, no, Lord. God has not left us alone in our struggles to do his will. He wants to come along, side us, to be within us, to help us. And he gives us that desire and the power to please him. The secret to a changed life is really just submitting to God's control. Letting him work. Isn't it good to know as we face the problems of life that God works in us? Showing his will, enabling us according to his good purpose. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these beloved saints 
that you love with an everlasting love, that you've never left them, never will leave them, never will forsake them. In fact, Lord, you're working in them. You're working in each one of us. You're arousing us, stirring us, energizing our hearts as we come to you, giving us the desire just to please you, to honor you, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Because, Lord, it's you in us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.